Flourish Church Podcast, a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic church from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, dedicated to helping you flourish in your faith. For more information about our mission and how you can get involved, please visit www.uflourishchurch.org. When, when I was in high school, under the guidance of my, one of my science teachers, I fell in love with the stars. I fell in love with the stars and the constellations and the galaxies. I began, they had all these kinds of cool names like Cassiopeia and Rigel and Pollux and Andromeda. And so when I got to college, even though I never pursued that, I ended up finding myself in an astronomy class. Now, to be honest, I, I don't remember a whole lot from that class, but there was this one moment early on, there was this introductory moment that I've never forgotten. The professor is introducing the class, and he's introducing what we are about to study, and he said, astronomy should bring you a lot of humility, because when you look up and when you study all that's out there, you come to realize that you are but a speck on this globe. And, and this globe is just a speck in what we call the solar system. And the solar system is just a speck in our own galaxy. And our galaxy is but a speck in the universe, the hundreds of billions of galaxies. And he said, that should bring you great humility. And the moment he said that, this thought flooded my brain and has never gone away. And that is, if that, if the vastness of the universe should bring me great humility, how much more humility should I have? when I begin to think about the God who brought it into existence. When I think about the God that spoke it into being, we measure the galaxies in light years, in billions of light years. The Bible tells us that God measures it by the span of his hands. We go billions and billions of light years. God goes, I don't know, I guess about that big. And that should bring us great humility. And we're going to need some humility as we step into today's passage, as we begin to get a glimpse of what God is doing. Let me catch you up before we step back into Romans. Uh, uh, God, in context there, is building a family. God is building a family. He is, he is building a group. He's building a people. But that people is actually different than what some projected, than what some anticipated, right? We, 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 they, would, they would have thought of Israel, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And Paul goes, hold up. Not all Israel is Israel. And we should know that, right? Because Abraham had more than one sons, but it was not through Ishmael, the one who came just through, through physical lineage, through the bloodline. No, 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 no. It was the son of the promise. 
It was Isaac. God made this promise that Sarah would have a son, and it came through Isaac. So it's not about physical lineage. It's not about biological bloodline. It's about promise. And, 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 And so those that belong to God come through promise and only through promise. So when we pick up in, 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 in verse 14, that's the question that's kind of going there. But, but here's the difficulty. God is building a family, and if we're honest, there's very little family resemblance. If you saw my brother and I standing next to each other, you would go, nah, they're, they're not related. Until you saw our parents, and you go, well, that one looks like him, that one looks like her. Right? And, and if you let life play out, you go, oh, this one does this because of her, and this one does this because of him, and he's like this because of that. There's this family resemblance, and God is, 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 is building a family, and we look around, and none of us bear that family resemblance of peace and joy and love and justice and all of those beautiful things. So how is God doing that? How is he going to build a family? He is going to build a family through promise because he said that he would and he is good for it. And he will build a family. So when we jump into verse 14, read it with me. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Because God's family is built by promise, some might be sitting there and thinking, hold up, hold up, hold up, that isn't fair. That's not just. So Paul jumps into that, and he asks the question out loud, what are we going to conclude from this? What are we going to conclude? Is there injustice on God's part? Because that's how God builds his family, is he unjust? And then Paul gives us his answer, by no means. I like to translate that a little bit differently. Paul asks the question, is God unjust? And then he says, are you out of your mind? That's insane. No, let let, let me break this down for you. For he says to Moses, God's speaking to Moses, and he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. God had created a freed people. The people of Israel had been enslaved and in bondage, and the whole thing was awful. It was a cruel slave master. It was a brutal oppressor, and and Israel cried out, and God, through the exodus, God, through the exodus, saves them, rescues them, and now they're saved. They're, they're, They're no longer enslaved. They're free. 
Now Moses goes up on a mountain and this recently freed people go, hey, where'd that guy go? We need a rescuer. We need a savior that we can see. So one of them is like, hey, give me all your jewelry. He melts all the gold. He makes this baby cow made out of gold. And they're like, that's the one that rescued us. And just like that, God had rescued them and they turned, ignoring, neglecting all that he had done, pursuing other gods. And God says, everybody goes. Justice would have demanded that they all go. They were his people. He rescued them. They were free because he had done that. And now they had turned to another. And Moses cries out. Moses intercedes. And God responds with, listen, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'm going to have compassion on whom I have mercy compassion, and God rescues. Verses 16 tells us, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, it's, it's, it's not a human's ability to, to will this righteousness and bring themselves into the family. The, the, humanity has no power to do this. And, and, and Paul is actually following Jesus on this. Paul is actually following the very teachings of Jesus on this, right? Jesus had been, had, had been uh, talking to his disciples, and he's, there, he's trying to explain to them. And he says, listen, it'd actually be easier, right? A camel would have an easier time making his way through the eye of a needle than a rich man would getting into heaven. That brings no comfort to the disciples. Their reaction is, well, who then, who then can be saved? And Jesus replies, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Salvation belongs to him. In fact, when, 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 when they're walking to Caesarea Philippi and Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes through and he says, you are the Christ. You're the king. You're the anointed one we've been waiting for. You're him. And Jesus says, blessed are you. You did not gather this from humans. This has been revealed to you from the Father in heaven. Salvation comes from God. Salvation comes from God. It is not based on human exertion. It is not based on human will, but on God who has mercy. Now, this is, this is, this is Paul. This is God. This is like like peeling the curtain back a little bit and allowing us to see into what is happening in salvation. Now, when we see that, right, when we finally get in there and see what it took to rescue humanity, there are some things in there that get confusing. There are some things there that we don't understand, because I'm a speck on a globe that's a speck in a solar system, that's a speck in a galaxy, that's a speck in another galaxy. And God measures that whole thing by saying it's about that big. So when we finally peek into salvation, it's complicated in there. 
but we know that it does not happen without the mercy and compassion of God. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, right? God says to Pharaoh, this is the reason I have raised you up. Now, I, I like sports. I, I like especially, especially soccer and basketball. And, and, and something that, that is a little bit weird to me is that I actually like talking about sports more than I actually like sports, right? Which means I'm like always out of my league. I'm always saying things that I don't really know what I'm talking about. And, and, and one of my favorite things to talk about is what they call the GOAT debate, right? Like who's the greatest of all time? Who are the top five? Who are the top 10? And, and there's this thing that always happens, and this happens in basketball, this happens in soccer, is this. People that played a long time ago get discredited, right? They go, oh, the competition wasn't as good back then, right? They weren't as tough. They weren't all these things. The the defenses weren't as good, right? And as soon as somebody says that, my thought is like, well, what did you want? Do you want them to time travel? Like, is that something that is necessary for somebody to be the greatest of all time, that they travel throughout time to find the best competition, right? Uh, uh, this this, this uh, Pelé in soccer, Bill Russell in basketball, they say the competition wasn't as good. And I go, what did you want them to do? Did you want them to go to the opposing team's training and help them get stronger, Help them get smarter. Help them have better tactics so that your competition could be better. Is that what you want? That's literally what God did against Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the oppressor, the great oppressor, the ones in charge, thinking he got to his position of power all on his own. And God says, you think that's what happened? No. I elevated you. I made the competition stronger. I made my enemy more powerful in order that the entirety of the world would be able to see what I can do. I, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up. I elevated you in order that my power would be shown in you and that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. God is in sovereign control over all that is happening. And if you're sitting there at that time, you go, I don't understand what is going on. Meanwhile, God is behind the scenes doing things that are beyond our human comprehension for our salvation. So then he has mercy, 
Verse 18 tells us. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's a natural conclusion that Paul comes up with. God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and Pharaoh, whose heart was hard, instead of God jumping in and immediately getting him out, God actually hardens him and elevates him in order that his name might be proclaimed. Verse 19. Let me read this next session. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will, the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. We, we, we're at a place where we come to understand that God operates out of his mercy, that God operates out of his mercy where, where, where justice would have demanded complete annihilation of the people. God's mercy stepped in. But his mercy comes in strong, which leads to the conclusion, well, maybe, maybe is he still just? Verse 19 then asks this question directly. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Who can resist his will? But when we're reading this, we got to go all the way back to the beginning of Romans to realize why God's wrath showed up, right? The wrath of God, more on this in a minute, more on this in a minute. But the wrath of God shows up because humanity, humanity is, is pressing down against who God is. His wrath is revealed because humans suppress truth. We suppress the image of God in us. We suppress the image of God in others. We violate each other. We hurt each other. And God's wrath comes out towards that. Is God the ultimate judge not going to judge? Verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And, and, and all of a sudden, we get this like microscopic book of Job, right? Job had all of these questions. Job thought he was wronged. Job 
thought, hey, God, like, can there be a mediator between me and God so that we can work this out? I didn't do anything wrong. And God, at the end of the book, says, well, hold up. Fault finder, you want to contend? Let me ask you some questions. Let me ask you some questions. Where were you? Where were you when I laid down the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Did, did you put the strength in the horse? Was that you? Are you the one that says to the waters, come up to here but no further? Is that you? And here we, 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 get, a little bit of, we, we get a little bit of that. And, and, and Paul is saying, who are you, mere mortal? Who are you with, with blood-stained hands to come to God and answer back to him? Will the molded say to its molder, we got this talking clay, Have, why did you make me like this? God, I, I didn't want to be a mug. I wanted to be a vase, not a vase, a vase. Why you make me a mug? People keep pouring hot stuff into me. I wanted to hold flowers. Again, Paul is pulling that curtain back on salvation. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Does he not have the authority? God's questions, God's motives are being questioned. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, now I wanna to talk to you about wrath a little bit. Because wrath is one of those words we get a little bit uncomfortable with. Right, we use the word wrath for like, for like the toddler that hasn't gotten his way in something. And now he's just throwing things, he's inconsolable, he's raging. Or, or, or we think about the, the adult who's driving. And, and life is piling up on him, and now he can't stand it anymore. And the slightest thing makes him go off, and he explodes. That's how we view wrath. But, but, but God is not like us. God is not like us. So what does it mean when we talk about the wrath of God? Well, it means this. God is absolutely just. His, per his justice is perfect. There's nothing missing from his justice. His, his, his fuel gauge for justice is always on full. It never dips even a little bit under full. He's always been that way. He is that way. He will always be that way. He's always just. And God is love, right? So God is just not a perfect judge who's just. He's also love. He deeply loves those whom he created. Again, his fuel gauge is always on full. His love never dips under that. Now, what happens when you combine those two? And in God, justice and love walk hand in hand. They don't ever fight. They don't ever compete against each other. God is always love, and he's always just. So what happens 
when a little one of his, when a pressure creature of his gets injustice done to them? What happens when there's murder? What happens when there's all sorts of abuse? What happens when there's all kinds of betrayal for those whom he loves? He never dips under love. He never dips under justice. So what happens is wrath. He's not okay with injustice happening to his beloved. Those whom he loves, he cannot stand injustices done to them. So his wrath builds up. Now, sometimes where we would be uncomfortable hearing about the wrath of God, it actually is proof that he is perfectly loving. It is proof that he is perfectly just. Right? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, right, so that you would see that he is just and that he is loving, endured with much patience? God comes armed with patience. He comes equipped with patience. And back from Romans 2, uh, uh, 4, we know that his patience, the purpose of his patience in my life as yours is to guide us to repentance. It is to guide us to a place where we turn. Well, what if? What if desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, he endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he does that in order to make known, verse 23 tells us, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is prepared beforehand for glory. He, he, what, if, what if this wrath that, 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 that shows, that, that, that portrays, that displays, that he is perfectly just, that he is perfectly loving, right? what if he endures with much patience so that those who are he has compassion on those who he has mercy on would see the riches of their glory. Even us, verse 24 tells us, even us whom he has called, and not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. As indeed it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. God is building a family. God is putting together a family. But it isn't who you expect. It's not who they expected. It's not who they anticipated. Those that weren't called his people, he said, I'll call them my people. Those for whom the name beloved was not for them, he says, I will call them beloved. God is creating a people that will be called sons of the living God, and it is not who you would expect it to be. We would expect it to be the, 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 the teetotaler who keeps all the rules. But Jesus says uh, uh, to some who come, Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't in your name we perform miracles? And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. But he says, come on in. He says, come on in to felons, 
to prostitutes, to the marginalized, to those that society wants no part of. He says, come on in. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Now listen to verse 29, because it'll help us understand this passage immensely. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Cities that were completely devastated, pulverized. Had it not been for God's mercy, had it not been for God's justice, had it been without this, that's what we would have been like. We had no chance. If God had not stepped in with his compassion, that's what would have happened. So God's mercy and God's justice meet, and they meet without competing because they meet on a Roman torturing device. They meet on a cross. God becomes the fullness and the entirety of our sin. All that we've done wrong, all of our injustices, all of our wickedness, all of the things that are wrong in us, God, who is man, becomes them. He becomes them in its, in its fullness. And he dies a brutal death so that justice is fully served. But he remains merciful. He remains merciful. He remains compassionate. And he rescues those that had no right to be rescued. Verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Listen, I get it. Like the, 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 the curtain gets peeled back on what salvation's like, on what God is doing behind the scenes. And we see a glimpse of it. And it becomes a, a passage that's quite difficult to understand. But here's the part that, that is clear. God is merciful and he is just. And he is building together a family. And you can't predict what it'll look like. And so here's what he says. Get this. That those who didn't pursue righteousness, they got it. Well, how did they get it? They got it by faith. They got it by trusting in what God did for them. They put their faith on the gift. God graciously gifted them salvation. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in that law. Why? Because it did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over 
the stumbling stone. So listen, with all of this stuff, it kind of raises all of these questions, and, 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 but there's a simplicity to it that we see right here. How do you enter into the family of God? How do you come in to the family of God? He is merciful. He is just. There's all of these things happening behind the scenes. It's hard for us to grasp. But how do you enter? By faith. Right? And those who pursued it in a way outside of faith did not get it. But God graciously gifted. It's a gift. So you receive it. Faith is, 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 is cupped hands open and waiting. It's the hands of a beggar waiting for the gift to come. And God goes, here's my salvation. But they've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I want you to see Jesus there. I want you to see the presence and work of Jesus. And there's two ways. There's the stumbling, he's a rock of offense, and there's one that believes in him who's not put to shame. That's it. That's it. All of history surrounds, all of history gets placed for all of eternity in how they respond to Jesus. God says, I put him there. You're either going to stumble or you're going to believe. And if you believe, you will not be put to shame. I got you. And God, God's building a family. God's putting together a family. It's unexpected. It's, it's not who we would have anticipated. It's not who we would have projected. John will eventually tell us one day that, that, that it's, 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 it's a large family. Nobody can count it. You start doing the arithmetics and you lose count. And people are there from everywhere, right? There's Nigerians there. There's Japanese there. There's, there's South Americans there. There's people from every place in the globe. So, so, so what do we do with that? What do we do with that? We can't predict, so we welcome the stranger, God has, God has already demonstrated what that family will be like. We know that. John has told us. They'll be from every tribe and tongue and, plan, and, and, and place in the planet, right? And so we welcome them. We welcome them because they come by faith alone. It's how I got here, not based on my lineage, not based on my own background, not based on anything that I have done, but based on him and him alone, and we turn and we welcome the stranger. We say, come on in, and we try to increasingly, by his grace, by his power, to begin to have that family resemblance, that we're people of love, we're people of mercy, we're people of justice, we're people of joy. Lord God, may we become those people. God, we come to you. Lord, we, we burst into your throne room. God, we're a, Lord, we, we, we look at this passage, Lord, notoriously difficult to comprehend. And yet, God, we see so clearly that though undeserving, that though we are undeserving, in fact, that we are deserving of your wrath, God, that you have mercy, that you have compassion, 
that you have grace. Lord, that you remain just. Lord, you took the fullness of our sins and you died in our place. You remain just and yet you're the one who declares us righteous. God, we love you. We trust you. God, and I entrust each person here into your hands. God, no matter where they are, no matter what difficulty they are going through, Lord, may they see that those who once were not called, were called not his people are now his people. Lord, we love you and trust you in your holy name. Amen.